You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, I'm Rachel Wong, and thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. This week, I'm joined by Maria Cecilia Saba, who used to work with us at SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Together, we talk about Peruvian Andean horror films, something that Maria Cecilia knows quite a lot about. Maria Cecilia wrote her master's thesis at SFU on this very topic, and through her research, she found an interesting link between the rise in independently produced horror films in rural parts of Peru and the internal conflict that occurred beginning in the 1980s. For many of the local audiences, these films were more than just forms of entertainment. There were also some elements of healing and catharsis. Maria Cecilia and I talk about the symbolism behind these films, understanding film viewing as a live experience, and we dive into the fact that horror films are so much more than trying to scare audiences. Hello everyone, welcome to Below the Radar. My name is Rachel and I work as the communications coordinator with SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. And it is my absolute pleasure to interview a, a familiar voice on this show. You probably from time to time have heard the voice of Maria Cecilia Saba. She also is the one who has been really hard at work recently doing a lot of our editing for the podcast. And she's always the one behind the scenes recording. And today we're going to be talking about horror films. Hello, Maria. Hi, Rachel. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Yes. So I wanted to start by asking if you could share a little bit about your background and how it is that you came to study film, in particular horror films, but maybe we'll start with your educational and professional background. Sure. So I studied communications in University of Lima. While I was there, there was this professor who is now a dear friend of mine, uh, Emilio Bustamante. He had this ongoing research on, you know, regional films, which is basically films that are made outside of the capital city, Lima. And while I was in my latest years of communications, he organized a lot of screenings and events and panel discussions with filmmakers from different parts of Peru uh, as part of his research on regional films. And uh, I just got fascinated with this universe of films that already existed that I had no idea about. You know, I thought that all the films that were made in Peru were made in Lima. And then I was seeing films from Ayacucho, from Puno, from Huancabelica, from different parts. And and they were really interesting films as well. And, and there were a lot of films. There were like 200 films being made since 1996 up to, you know, I think I saw them in 2010, 2011. So yeah, it was it was like a whole new world for me to discover. So that kind of like also got me uh, interested in learning a little bit more about cultural policy and arts policy. So um, I did a 
a diploma program at the Pontificia Universidad Católica, which had a class on cultural policy. And that got me really into studying, you know, what was the means of production, what kind of aid they were getting from the government to make those films. And it was really interesting for me to know that they were making those films basically out of their pocket money. You know, like they were getting very little help from the government because of a myriad of factors. So it was kind of like this micro-productions being self-financed. And I and I kept thinking, like, what could we do from the universities or from the public sphere to kind of help fund these films or to find means of alternative funding or production to kind of really promote the cinema? So I started kind of like deviating a little bit from my desire to be a filmmaker myself to my desire to empower other filmmakers and to study a little bit more about what Peruvian cinema was actually like. I also felt like, like after after doing that, that program, I also felt like I wanted to take a break from Lima a little bit and just kind of take some distance and <laughs> travel a little bit. And um, I saw that at SFU, well, actually I saw that Laura Marks was at SFU. I started learning a little bit more about her, about her approach to film. And I felt that maybe that was like she would be a great supervisor for me, which she was, luckily. Uh, and that's what brought me brought me here to Vancouver. Right. Yeah. yeah. There are so many different genres of films. And we were kind of brainstorming earlier. Like there is, of course, there's comedy and romance and drama, action, psycho thriller, indie films and whatnot, which sounds like it was indie or like regional production was something that you were really fascinated with. And of all of the different genres, the one that you had did your uh, extended essay or the kind of like the, the culminating piece for your MA was on horror. Mm-hmm. And full disclaimer, I'm no expert in horror. I personally don't watch horror films at all. And in fact, even reading your, I was telling you earlier, even reading your MA thesis, it got me feeling a certain kind of way too. And I was wondering what got you interested in this particular genre? It's funny, really, because I, um, I've i never been a horror fan. <laughs> you and me both. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, I've only recently started watching, you know, like, classic horror films. I started wa- watching them for my... While I was researching these horror films from, from the Andes, right? So I had a lot to catch up on. But basically, I, I was always very, very scared of the films. You know, like, I, I am very sensitive. So, um, I don't know, like, for me, watching you know, gory films was not necessarily a good time because I would feel it so much in my own body. You know, like I would feel the repulsion. I would feel the disgust. I would feel the, you know, that knot in your stomach. And so that was never really my cup of tea until while I was talking to to this professor, Emilio, he mentioned something that was very curious to me. And that was that from all the production of films that was made in Peru, you know, in all of the regions, one of the regions with the most production was Ayacucho. And... Ayacucho, from all of those that production, like most of the production was horror films. And the reason why that was like so striking to me was because Ayacucho was, you know, the epicenter of this 20-year civil war in Peru, right? That started in the early 80s and kind of like was officially culminated, if you can ever culminate a war, um, in the 2000s, more or less, right? So... There was, I thought that there was something there, right? Like, why would a province that has been so much, that has been through so much 
pain and trauma and violence and and you know suffering why would those filmmakers be doing horror films for me that was like something that was really worth kind of like diving into so i did i was thinking a lot as well about what the lens the best lens would be to study this kind of films because it didn't feel like you know traditional western theories or traditional like structural analysis film analysis might really do the films justice or might be the best lens to look at the films because a lot of the filmmakers were themselves like uh, self-taught i don't know like I, i it felt like it there was more to this you know horror films been produced in ayacucho to just being entertainment it kind of felt like there were testimonies right. right so so that's what got me into horror <laughs> really yeah and what i find so fascinating about that too is like you said instead of it just being purely for entertainment's sake or for the sake of maybe it's just like a genre that is very popular regardless of the market there's actually something deeper that makes it a little more than just purely something that you'll watch passively or just consume almost and that's the thing no it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that passively because i really don't think that that we consume films passively i feel like the the film spectator if they're engaged with the story if they're engaged with what they're watching is anything but passive right like there's a lot going on inside in your body while you're watching a film like you react unconsciously not deliberately you react to what's whatever stimuli it's being you know projected on the screen and whatever stimuli you're hearing from the speakers there's something about horror specifically that i feel is very linked to social trauma and historic trauma there's been a lot of essays and studies conducted on this it's not coincidental that when a country has been through a war or a something that has shaken society a lot of uh, horror films have been produced with monsters that kind of represent those fears we were talking before about um the zombie films for example and how there if you see the you know the when the horror uh, zombie films start appearing in american screens it kind of coincides a little bit with the time when the soldiers and the veterans were coming back from war whether it was the you know the second world war or the Vietnam War. There's even one film for me it was really illustrative of this which was um The Hills of Eyes. I don't know if you've ever heard of the film. There's two versions, right? So one is in the 70s I think. It's kind of like shot more in a cinema verite kind of way. And the story of The Hills of Eyes is about this family of mutants that live in some kind of desert in, you know, outside like if if you if you um take a detour from the from the highway you will you arrive into this kind of like forgotten village with uh with mutants inhabiting the village right so the film was kind of launched after there was this huge reveal of the nuclear bomb testings that had been conducted in the deserts of the US <laughs> there was fear that maybe they had not evacuated properly the area and these were like actual social fears you know like you would see people talking about that in the news and this and that so of course like a, f- a horror film appears when you have like the consequences of what could have happened if they had not evacuated correctly the area right and and you will find that throughout many countries and many cultures the monster always represents the repressed and what we fear 
and you always have what is normal and then the monster or whatever is repressed kind of breaks through and alters normality right so it it takes you to a state of where everything is possible where, where normal is no, no longer is right so it's it's also a little bit cathartic it allows you to experience that catastrophic reality that manifestation of what is you know the realization of your worst fear but from a safe distance as well yeah. right like without having to actually endure it exactly you're just only enduring it through a screen through a screen yeah but what is interesting though about this films in Ayacucho is that everyone involved in the films actually endured the violence, right? So we're talking about a different kind of process here, right? It's not like a projection of what could happen or a projection of what is maybe about to happen in the short run, but it's actually a bit of a, of a testimony of our remembrance, of our reworking of embodied memories, right? Of the embodied fear. And I think that's something that you can really see in the choice of frames, how you frame a shot, how long you hold that shot as well. You know, what constitutes horror? You know, like it's not necessarily a horrific monster built, you know, on, on CGI or a lot of VFX or something that is very horrific to the view or frightening to the view. But I think the horror in many of these films also lies in the in the narrative and in the being there imagining being there at the moment what that makes me think of is when you hold a shot for so long you just have that experience of suspense and just worry and anxiety looking at the title of your paper which i have very handily right here <laughs> and it's called altered realities so visceral journeys into post-war peruvian Andean horror films so i guess if you don't mind maybe breaking down like we've talked a little bit about this already but to break down a visceral journey, what do you mean by that? I don't think that the viewer is a passive viewer. So I feel that films, that cinema takes you on a journey. It's taking you along the universe of the film, of the story. You're kind of being touched as well, kind of like sensorially, by whatever is in this universe of the film. For example, in one of the films, the universe is a very remote village that is very dark at night, you know? So your journey in this film in particular is kind of not knowing what is outside of the frame. Your journey is you're traveling along with the characters in this pretty deserted, very claustrophobic environment. And it's visceral because I feel like you feel it in your gut. The stimuli there are, are for me at least, are so sensorial. And I feel like your body responds so, so intensely to what you're seeing on screen, to the faces, to the sounds, to the crying, to the atmosphere that is created, that you're really having like this sort of visceral journey. Like you're not the same person at the end of the film that you are at the start of the film. And I'm interested to know because you were mentioning earlier how horror films and correct me if I'm wrong, you'd mentioned that are not your cup of tea. So in terms of like having this visceral reaction where you're not just watching it to scare yourself, but you're doing research. And I think that it's a very smart way to go about this type of research. And like you said, maybe the traditional theories of how you would do like content analysis, for example, that might not cut it and it might not do these films justice. So it's a different way of researching 
And it's a different way of experiencing these films, like from an academic standpoint, but also really engaging all of your senses and really paying attention to the characters and the storyline, the atmosphere. And I'm curious to know how that impacted you as a person afterwards, like, you know, having to watch the two films that you mentioned in this paper, you probably did a whole other group of viewings of other films. So all of that must impact you in a certain way. And I'm just wondering how you feel that watching these, doing this research has impacted you. It made me aware of my body, which is something that I, I don't think that we all do that enough. Like when we watch TV or films or anything, I don't think that we're always aware of how our body is being triggered by what's on screen and what you're hearing. I mean, it's happening, but you don't always kind of like listen to it, right? So I realized that after watching the films, after every, now every time I watch a film, I can feel that, you know? So it's made me a lot more sensitive to the aesthetics of the film, for example, for, of any film, whether it's, uh, it doesn't have to be horror. Horror, of course, is the one that's easier to be, to get excited or triggered with, right? Because it's, it's an assault on your senses. The whole theme of horror is, is just to kind of like shake you on with the story and give you this discharge of adrenaline. And you can feel that with any, any film because you can feel it, you know, when you have a close-up image uh, of someone experiencing a strong emotion. I don't know if you've ever kind of noticed that if you're watching some like close-up shot of someone's face as they are, you know, breaking down into tears and they're you know, like in a lot of pain or, or angst or whatever, then you start feeling kind of like your eyebrows lifting a little bit in the middle, maybe your your mouth, you know, kind of like twitching a little bit. And that's all like very natural responses. We're wired that way, right? Like we're wired to mimic each other's features. It's part of our being in the world. So you can feel it that way. Actually, one of my favorite scenes of an Indian horror film it's uh, of the movie Harhacha is one of the, the ones that I analyze in the essay. It's this very long sequence with two of the characters that are, again, kind of like lost in the mountains, you know, in the middle of the night with no light. And, and when I mean no light, I mean no light because they didn't even have light to shoot. <laughs> like they're using all of the resources they have in a very creative way, right? So they're lighting the faces with actual fire lamps. What they had at the moment is what you get on screen, right? So you get a little bit of the faces lit up and you get a, maybe a little bit of light uh, simulating moonlight, but that's about it, right? So it's very oppressive atmosphere. So this sequence has these two characters, there are, one of them is looking for the monster. He wants to confront the monster. And the other character, the, the wife, is looking for the husband. So you can see that they're both in panic. They're both super scared. There's a lot of really close-up shots of their faces as they look kind of like lost into the, the out of frame. So you go like between both character between both shots and the shots start kind of like merging one into the other a little bit dissolving one into the other and you can see in the face of the wife the desperation of the wife as she's calling out for the husband's name in the middle of nowhere and you can see her like I'm starting to feel it right now on in my body as, as, I, as I am telling you this you yeah. know like 
you can see her like with her face started, she's just about to burst into tears because she's so afraid you know so it's those kind of shots that evoke this kind of re visceral reactions because it's not only in your belly you don't only feel it in the in the not like something's gonna happen here but you also feel it throughout mm -hmm. and i guess like speaking of that film that you're referencing how did you come to choose the two films that you analyze for this piece and you notice i'm being very vague i don't want to botch the names or the pronunciation so i'll let you <laughs> name them for our audience but how how did you come to choose these particular films over maybe other ones again i was in contact with emilio back and forth while i was here doing my master's degree right and um i told him that i was really interested in horror films and i asked him like what are the what are the ones that you would recommend like there's so many Right? I'm specifically, I'm most interested in the ones in Ayacucho, but I'm open to other provinces as well. So he started, started kind of like recommending some of the films and some of the films I was able to watch online. They, someone had already kind of like, you know, downloaded the film and posted it on YouTube or something. And others, he very generously copied for me and sent me a link so that I could watch them here. And others, he just, uh, when I went to Lima, I met with him and he gave me some copies. So I must have watched like maybe 12 films. And that's not that's not a lot. This is like a very selected sample. And when I was talking to Laura as well, like about my, my research, she gave me the idea of like maybe doing a little showing of the films. Mm. Right? So she encouraged me to to plan this Andean Horror Film Fest, which I kind of did as part of my of my work at the Masters. So then the thing became kind of like not only what films I'm going to be studying to research on paper, but also like if I have the opportunity of selecting a few films to show to a non-Peruvian audience and show them like what is Andean horror, what films would I choose, right? So I started kind of like narrowing down the films that I liked uh, the ones that spoke to me the most or the ones that I, I thought had like kind of like the most depth in a way. And so I um, I ended up kind of like settling between three or four films that I liked the most. And what's kind of common to all of these films is that not only were they horror films, but they were also adaptations of oral myths, right? So... It wasn't, that we, I know that we've talked about uh, how these films kind of resonate with internal armed conflict and the violence and, and the civil war and all of that. They don't talk about it explicitly, you know, like, so it's not a horror film about war. It's not a horror, they're not horror films about uh, what was going on in Ayacucho at the time. There are adaptations of horror legends of monsters and Andean monsters, right? So you have the Harhacha, which is a were llama demon. So it's a half man, half llama that gets turned into this being as a punishment for being incestuous. And these creatures they inhabit a community, right? And um, and their curse is basically they, they they look like people during the day, but their curse is to transform into a were llama, and they go around, you know, attacking villagers at night and eating their brains or whatnot. And so there's a lot of like syncretism into what the harhacha is because it kind of feels like it's very unique 
and particular to onion cosmology, but at the same time, it has traits that you could associate, you know, with uh, with a werewolf, or that you could associate with, uh, you know, a vampire or whatever, right? The interesting thing about the harhacha as well is that you cannot stop the harhacha alone. You can only stop the harhacha acting as a community. So it has to be punished by the community at sunrise. So there's like a lot of protocols as to how you handle the harhacha. And it's also very important that it's a creature that is, it's born inside of the community. So keep that in mind because it's, it's, uh, I will explain why it's important. Then you have the pishtaku. Now that's another creature and it's another one of the, of the monsters of the, of the films. And the pishtaku is a whole different kind of, of, of um, evil, right? Uh, the pishtaku is a foreign assassin. Is usually white or fairer skinned. And what the pishtaku does is that it will kill peasants, like Andean people, to withdraw their fat, like to extract their fat, their body fat, and sell it. So what's interesting about the pishtaku is that it, it is a pre-Columbian legend. In pre-Columbian uh, pre times, like before the conquest, the pishtakos were supposed to be like assassins, like the elite assassins of the Inca. With the conquest, the pishtakos became, were said to be um, sent by the priests and the, you know, and the Catholic Church. And they said that they would use the human fat to grease the bells at the churches so that the sound would travel further. Right? And then with industrialization, they said that the pishtaco was actually working for the capitalist powers of you know, North America and Europe, and that they were using the fat to sell it to industrialized countries to oil their machines, to increase production. And now they say that, the, that they use the fat to kind of create you know, like cosmetics and, and stuff like that. So... It always changes, like the what the pishtaco uses a fat for always changes, or who it sells it to. But it's always a monster that represents extraction of natural resources. So it's and it's always foreign. So that's very interesting as well. And then you have other other creatures as well. You have the uma. That's like a, it's a witch that has a head that detaches from her body at night and flies, you know, above the. The villages and you have the Karisiri that's kind of like an evil shaman that will do pacts and whatnot. And there's a whole universe of Andean creatures. But the ones that I researched, for example, were the Pishaco and the, Har and the Harhacha. And the reason why I focus on these two is because their stories kind of felt like they represented a little bit of how the internal armed conflict was felt in Ayacucho, right? So this conflict, there were three parties at war, really. You had um, you had the terrorist group that was Sendero Luminoso, Shining Path. You had the Peruvian army on the other side. And then you had the Ronderos that were like civilians that gathered together in kind of like these self-defense committees. Taking in mind these three players and taking in mind how, like how it was felt in Ayacucho, it was differently felt in the northern part of Ayacucho and the southern part of Ayacucho. So in the south, Shining Path was able to enter the community in a more sigilant way. And um, they integrated the community. And they ended up being very, very violent. 
you know, in the end with the Andean population, like 70 something percent of the people that died during the conflict were peasants. Over 50 had Quechua or another indigenous language as their first language. So it was like very, very much based. Uh, their activity was very, very based in remote Andean communities. So in the South, they were integrated to the community and it was only later that they started kind of revealing themselves as the terrorists, as Shining Path. The way that Ayacuchanos will speak or would speak about senderistas at the time was sometimes by referring to them as jarjachas, you see, because they were bred in the community, they were a part of the community, but they were actually killing each other. And this kind of, I think, also created a little bit of a safer distance to kind of speak of the of what was currently happening in the code of a legend, in the code of a, you know, of a popular cultural reference. And then the opposite happened in the north. Like in the northern side of Ayacucho, the senderistas arrived much later and they were more violent. So the Ayacuchanos from the northern communities, they did not let the senderistas in as easily as they did in the south. So they were attacked kind of like as an enemy way early. And when the military arrived, they were so vicious, so, you know, violent as well in the way that they were confronting the senderistas that northern populations kind of felt like they were trapped between the two, right? Like they were trapped between senderistas that wanted to coerce them into joining their army. And they were trapped between the military that thought that everyone was a senderista because they couldn't tell who was. So that's how they created these self-defense committees. So in the North, it's interesting because uh, then the assassin, the, the threat, is a foreign thing. It's a foreign person. It's not someone that is inbred from the community. And they ended up referring to pistacos. They ended up referring to the, to the, you know, to the army or the senderistas, anyone who looked a little different from the ones in the community, they were referred as pistacos. So in the films, for example, you see the way they have treated the jarjacha and the pistaco and the way their stories have been treated, you can kind of feel that they are recreating a little bit of the tension that was felt at the time of the conflict through an adaptation of a horror legend in a code of the horror film. You know, so it's it's very layered. It's not just a, f a horror film for entertainment. It's it's actually like a testimony. Uh, it, there, I, I feel like there's a lot of embodied memory involved there. You know, like the actors of the films, they're not professional actors. They're natural actors. So they haven't, you know, they haven't studied the method. They're acting from memory. They're acting for experience. They're bringing back a lot of, of what they have lived through and expressing it on camera. And I remember going to Ayacucho after I did the paper um, and I went to Ayacucho and I started kind of, um, and I met with a lot of the filmmakers there. I asked them like, were you here when the violence started in Ayacucho? Did you live through it? Like, how did that influence your film? You know, all of them said that they had been through the violence, like whatever it is in their films is nowhere near you know, the horror that they have actually experienced or witnesses or witnessed. So they say that it's, for them, it's kind of, a, in a way, it's inevitable for them, right? That's what they said, that they don't need to read a book. They don't need to kind of like learn what happened because they have lived what happened. And it's not like they're doing the films thinking, this is what I need to do in order to express what happened actually at, during the conflict. 
it's that the way that they treat horror narrative, it's already a little bit like, in, you know, infused with the experience, the memory of the experience of what happened. And, you know, there's filmmakers like Palito Ortega. He's the director of Jarjacha. He passed away last year, but he dedicated his whole film career to talking about the conflict. The guy has like three films that are kind of in the melodrama genre that speak of the aftermath of the conflict, the social aftermath. Then he has like three films that speak of the harhacha, you know, that, that are about the harhacha and, and their horror films. And, and then he has like three other films that came out later that are kind of more in the drama, like social realism drama that speak about the actual violence. And he does that starting from his own experience because he received death threats from Sendero. He also was tortured by the military, you know. So, like, he, he's been through it all. And he felt like he was morally obliged to tell what happened because it's not going to be the same, you know, the testimony of someone from Ayacucho that has lived through it as the testimony or the or whatever someone from Lima is imagining that that happened, you know, because they've read it in a book or in a study or whatever, so... You know, there's there's this need still in, in Ayacucho and in other parts that have been hit or have been suffering with, with some sort of trauma or crisis to release this story, to kind of like tell the story and put it on screen. And there's also a, a huge attendance for these films in Ayacucho. And you would think that maybe, you know, if you've been through all of that, why would you go and see the film? But it's also that release. It's seeing... It's not dealing with the trauma directly, not relieving it, but kind of seeing it played out in front of you at a safer distance and in the code of a fiction film, you know? So I think that there's a lot of um, healing that I think is being done through this film, not only the horror films. I think I feel that the horror films are are kind of like maybe the the more shocking the horror films will be the most triggering for sure also because they're we're talking about mythological monsters and creatures that don't exist and all of that maybe those can be like assimilated as fictions and because they're fictions like a little safer mm-hmm. it definitely is like there's just so much to take in and i think one thing that i got from that and i think i'm starting to understand too is that it really is just it's an opportunity like you said to go on this visceral journey to become more aware of yourself and to also have that release and process your trauma in a different way one thing that i'm curious about too was you know for maybe uh, north american audiences who didn't go through such a thing so you were mentioning earlier that you did hold a screening i'm curious to know what the reception of Canadian audiences, people that were at that screening, what their response was to these films. Put yourself in my place. Like I'm, I'm screening Peruvian Andean horror films. Like it's super niche, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I thought that um, I thought that I would only get you know like very niche audiences, as maybe someone that was like really into horror films, or maybe someone that was Peruvian or Latin American, you know. But then when Canadian audiences started showing up, I'm not going to lie, like I, I actually invited a lot of them from the school, from SFU. <laughs> but the fact is that they showed up, right? And because I knew some of them, right? Like I, I had seen them around. Uh, maybe they were not in my cohort, but we had met before. And it was like, can I interview you afterward? Like kind of like find out a little bit more of how that impacted you. 
the feedback that I got was one that it was like a thriller. It felt like a thriller. Some people said that the Harhacha was one of the best horror films, like indie horror films that they had seen. Another uh, other feedback that I got was like, and, the, and I really liked this one was um, someone said, "I've never heard someone scream like that in my life." Mm. You know, and they said that there was something very real about the scream and the agony that was being expressed by the actor. I, I, I always did a QA after after every screening because of course it's a lot to ask from you know audiences that have never heard of it. And to be fair, like a lot of people in Lima had not heard of, of Andean horror films until very recently. No? And so it's it's something that is very obscure, very, very cold. So I would kind of like not in, introduce them a little bit, explain a little bit of the production, you know, the production value that this is not going to be a Hollywood film. So don't expect like huge, you know, visual effects and whatnot. And there's going to be glitches. Sure, because these are films that have been made in the year 2003, you know, with handicaps sometimes with a very, very, you know, it's it's not high end cameras. These are video cameras um, that you could have at home uh, with very small crews so you cannot just setting the expectations where they should be it's a great film but it's not Hollywood right and I would also kind of like let them know a little bit about the context but not too much because I didn't want to kind of uh, give out too much before they they saw the film because I also wanted to kind of see if they would get scared just with the film alone or what would the reaction be just with the film alone and afterward, like I, I, I would try to bring the, the director on Skype. I, I succeeded with one of the directors, but otherwise, I had already kind of like interviewed them so many times that I, not that I could speak for them, but I kind of like conducted a little bit of a, led a bit of the discussion and and contextualized a little bit more, talking about the the social political context and everything that we have just talked about right now. And apparently that that also kind of uh, helped after they had experienced the film, tie the knots a little bit more, you know? So they would get a little bit more of the context and then, you know, memories of anything. Memory is not static, right? So whenever you remember something, you're remembering, but you're, it's actually also kind of like re-remembering and reliving and readjusting that memory to what you know in the present. Some of them I could see that they were like, oh, so I get why this happened. Oh, okay. So the, for some of them, when I talked to them later, knowing the context afterward would also kind of make it more scary in retrospective. I think it was a good reception with the films. I think it's not, definitely it's not for everyone. You, you, know, you need to know like what you're going into. Like with a lot of films, you're not going to go see a Holodowski film at the Cineplex and expect it to be filled, you know, with the same audience as going to go see, you know, Avengers, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's, every film has its audience. But yeah, I feel like the themes that are explored in these films are so humane mm -hmm. and are so integrated to our human experience, loss or fear or anxiety or horror, terror, like they're, they're very basic human emotions right so so i feel like it's, it's relatable independent of where you're coming from right like if you have just a little bit of context you can make more of it mm -hmm. but you will still understand the message and, you, and i think you will still be moved by it wow 
Oh my gosh. So it just, it helps me to look at films and even like horror films, like I said, something that I'm not really too fond of, but it makes me appreciate them a little more. So I thank you for that. (laughs) And I think just to close, I'm curious to know what, of all the ones that you may have seen, what is your favorite horror film? It's a harcha. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, no, for me, that's that's my favorite, which is super unfair to all of the other films because they're all so good. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it's the thing that, that, that really stuck with me from that film was the atmosphere, the oppressive darkness of the Andean night. Just that kind of already feels a little bit scary mm-hmm. because you don't know what's out there but also the framing of the of the faces and the length of the shots like just the entrainment a feeling that you're there with them you cannot look elsewhere like you're you're focused on how they are experiencing that moment mm-hmm. so for me that that treatment that's why it's my favorite yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well thank you so much maria thank you so much for talking to me Thanks again to Maria Cecilia Saba for joining us on this week's episode of Below the Radar. And as well, many thanks to the great people that helped to put this podcast together, including myself, Rachel Wong, Paige Smith, and Fiorella Pinoyos. David Steele is the composer of our theme music, and thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Below the Radar.